House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, today we are talking about um, uh, a book called Survivors. It's the Forgotten Victims of Murder and Suspicious Deaths. And uh, it came out, it says here, on July 31st, 2019, so it's fairly fresh still. Uh, we've got the author on the line. His name is Dennis N. Griffin. Thank you for being here, Dennis. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. So, Dennis, um, before we get into the book Survivor, you've got quite the history. Uh, maybe um, tell the listeners um, kind of some of your background of what you've been doing. Yes, I retired uh, after a 20-year career in investigations in law enforcement in New York State, and uh, I retired in 1994, and I didn't know what to do with myself, actually. I was a poor golfer, so that didn't work out very well, and, and I decided I'd, uh, I'd write uh, the story of the last case I'd investigated uh, for New York State. And uh, I didn't intend to write any more books after that. I just, it was a story I wanted to tell. And um, I wrote the book called The Morgue. It was published in 1996. And I've got to say it, uh, I caught the bug. And I said, well, maybe there's a second book. So I, I started uh, writing, uh, I think it was eight mystery thriller fictions or the fact-based fictions. And then in 2005, I switched to nonfiction uh, with police history and organized crime books primarily. Wow. When you say fact-based fiction, so you, you're kind of taking some of the true story or some of the characters, and then do you just kind of fill in the blanks, or how does that go? Yeah, what I've done is uh, three of the books... Uh, the initial books were based on investigations I had actually done and cases I had encountered. I fictionalized them, but I had all the information. Then I uh, I did a, a three-book uh, stories about a male and female Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department homicide detectives. And at that time, I was working as a volunteer for Las Vegas Metro, so I had um, a lot of contacts. And I uh, created uh, some crimes, uh, rapes and murders and so forth, and I uh, ran them by some of the police officers just to make sure that I had my facts accurate on how different cases would come down and, uh, and so on and so forth. And I did, uh, I did those three books, and uh, it, was, it worked out very well for me. It, uh, it was a lot of fun writing. Unfortunately, that mystery thriller genre, uh, very stiff competition, at least I found, very stiff competition, a lot of great writers, and so I was kind of treading water uh, success-wise. I was holding my own, but I wasn't really going anywhere. So I was at a writer's conference in Florida in 2004, and during one of the breaks, I met up for coffee with one of the uh, instructors, and we talked a bit, and I said, well, you probably won't be seeing me again because uh, I think I'm going to have to find a new hobby. I said, I'm getting kind of frustrated. I don't seem to be able to break out of the pack. And uh, 
she said, well, with your background, why don't you do police uh, books and uh, and true crime? And she had happened, uh, as it worked out, had written the story of the Indiana State Police. She had been a civilian employee there. So we, uh, she sent me some information, and I approached Las Vegas Metro and asked about doing their history. And um, they agreed that they would support me and back me and cooperate with me. So I ended up doing a book called Policing Las Vegas, and that opened the door for my organized crime uh, books. I, I ran into a, a lot of interesting characters and heard about a lot of interesting characters in the policing book, and that led me to Tony Spilatro. If, uh, if anyone not familiar with him, if you've ever seen the movie Casino, he was Joe Pesci's character in that movie was based on Tony. And uh, I got into all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I ended up doing. Uh, my next book was titled "The Battle for Las Vegas: The Law versus the Mob," and it was about the Spilatro era in Vegas, the the true story behind the movie Casino. And then uh, everything seemed to explode from there. And I got uh, a lot of uh, interest in me and my writing through those books. Well, I find that really interesting. So when you got into the nonfiction here and you're writing with with Spilato and people like that, what was that experience like? Like when you're you're with someone that's actually involved in these kind of um, I don't know what you call it, gangster sort of stuff or mob mob related things. What what's it like and how how far can you go with your questions? Well, my my first. Uh mobster that I actually interviewed was uh, a man named Frank Collata and he was actually the technical consultant for the movie Casino and after he and Tony Spilatro had a falling out and Tony uh, wanted him killed, had a contract in place on him Frank ended up going into witness protection and I, uh, I found him through his former FBI agent handler who debriefed Frank after he flipped and became a witness, government witness. And it was a, a very odd situation to begin with because I was I was had a law enforcement background. Frank was the kind of guy that, uh, you know, we had nothing in common. <laughs> and when, uh, when I was talking with Frank and then when Frank asked me if I'd be interested in writing his biography, for him, the, the first meeting we in-person meeting we had, I was very well. I'm maybe cold feet would be an appropriate uh, term to say. I was thinking as Frank was not formally educated, but he was very streetwise. And I thought to myself as I was going to this meeting, is he going to be able to sense how I feel about him? And if so, will that clear the deal? And uh, but we we hit it off quite well. We spent about three hours in a motel room talking, and uh, on a handshake, I agreed to write his biography. As I was driving home, I, I got thinking. I said, "Gee, now here's a career criminal and killer," and I just walked out of his hotel room making a deal with a handshake. How smart was that? So I, oh, yeah. I, uh, I questioned my own judgment. Actually, I know it all, but. Uh, Frank and I know this was in 2006 or 2005 actually and 
Frank and I have become uh, close friends, and uh, and we've done several business deals together. And uh, I it was a very uh, you know even though I don't condone what Frank did in his previous life, um, he's my probably one of my best friends today. Dennis, this is uh, Mike. Um, then, but I, I noticed also you wrote a book with Joey, the Fixer Sylvester. Yes. And is is this is he related uh, to the Las Vegas mob uh, or the Chicago mob? No, Joe's a New York City guy. Okay. And he was involved there. And I also wrote another book about a, a New York City uh, mob associate named Andrew DiDonato, and he was a, a soldier for the Gambino family. So I've I've done uh, not exclusively Chicago stuff. I've done some. Uh, some New York stuff as well. So how did you get a hold of Joey after uh, talking to, like, Frank? Uh, were, did they know each other, or is that how you did it? No, they didn't know each other at all. What happened was, that as, as I was promoting my books, then I started working uh, with another lady, a female author, who asked me to help her on a, a, a true crime book. And the subject of that book was uh, a girl who knew a New York mobster named Tony Napoli. And Tony's dad, Jimmy Napoli, had been one of the kingpins in gambling, illegal gambling in the United States. And she introduced me, this girl introduced me to Tony, and Tony asked, uh, he knew I was helping her write a book, so he asked if I would be interested in doing a book on a friend of his, which I did, a New York person. And then uh, he also asked me later if I would do Joe Silvestri's book. So Tony okay. Napoli set up with, with two additional books, New York-based. So, so you're well-connected now. <laughs> connected, I like that word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's crazy. I've met a lot of people. Well, does it does it ever worry you, or did it ever worry you, or that you might write something that upset someone or put someone in the wrong mood? I, as a matter of fact, that did happen to me uh, initially when I was doing the battle for Las Vegas book about the Tony Spilatro era in Vegas. I was trying to find. I had a lot of uh, retired FBI agents and Metro cops that were cooperative. But I wasn't getting much from the other side. I wasn't getting much from the mob side, and that's where the uh, retired FBI agent uh, who was maintained contact with Frank set me up to meet Frank or to talk with Frank and then meet him. And at, uh, and I was also wanted to find out, since Tony Spilatro had been murdered, if I could talk to somebody who knew him well in addition to Frank. So I tried to track down Tony's widow, and I found her, her name was Nancy Spilatro, and they had an adopted son named Vincent. And I called Nancy, I was able to come up with a phone number for her, and I wanted to know if she'd agreed to an interview that we could meet. And I was out that day doing some business, and I was uh, on my way home, so I called my wife to see if she needed anything at the store or whatever. And I could tell by her voice something was not, right and I said what's the trouble 
And she said, this guy named Vincent Spilatro called, and he's not happy. And I said, oops, well, I said, I'll call him when I get home. So I get home, and I called. And he was, uh, I didn't know what I was up to, why did I want to talk to his mother, and, and so forth. So we started off a little bit rocky, and uh, but things smoothed out after a bit, and I was able to meet with Nancy, and she gave me uh, a lot of good information for the book. So, so things worked out there and I had another issue when I started uh, if you ever saw the movie Goodfellas that's based on the life of Henry Hill oh, uh, yes. right after Ray Liotta and Henry Hill and I started doing some promotional gigs together I never wrote anything with him but I, I knew of him and then I got to meet him and um, one particular venue that wanted Henry to to be there to talk about New York, New York mob stuff, and they wanted me to be there to talk about Chicago. So I posted uh, various places on the internet, you know, that I'd be doing this event, and I got a call from a wise guy from New York, and uh, of course Henry Hill, you know, had flipped and become a government witness, and he was not real popular with the wise guys, and this one guy threatened me. Uh, that uh, if I knew what was good for me, I would not be promoting Henry Hill. So uh, I called Tony Napoli, and I said, "Do you know who this guy is?" And he, he explained he was uh, the, he was the real deal. And I said, "Well, I said I didn't set this up. I said I was invited by the owner of this particular venue to be there to talk about the Chicago outfit." I said, "Henry is going to be there also, but we are not." You know, I'm not promoting this, or I didn't recruit Henry. So uh, Tony said he would take care of it, which he did. He called this individual and told him that, uh, you know, I was just an invited guest. I was not Henry's manager. I was not trying to promote Henry. So that that all blew over, which was uh, a relief. And um, But after meeting Henry, then we hit it off quite well, and we started doing other events. I mean, he, you know, he he got to these things on his own merit, his own reputation, and his own background. I was not managing for him, but I was appearing at the same places with him. So we had uh, we spent quite a bit of time together, Henry and I. Wow. So are, are there things that um, you've learned uh, through the writing of these books that really uh, surprised you, or was everything kind of what you thought it would be? Now, I, I can't say everything was exactly as I thought. Um, now, I learned a lot about how these people think, these former mobsters or current mobsters in some cases, and the thought process they go through. And it's, uh, it's quite a bit different than I thought. And we had one uh, meeting. We were doing a meeting in Las Vegas. They were calling it the a mob sit-down, and we had uh, well, Henry Hill and Frank and Andrew DiDonato and two or three more mob associates, and, and plus some retired cops and FBI agents. And I was listening to these guys talk, and I was just captivated. I mean, I sat there for I don't know how many hours uh, over a two-day period uh, at this meeting, and just listening to these guys tell 
both sides of the story at the same time. You know, you'd have a mobster talk about what he had done, and then the FBI agent would chime in and say, well, what we were doing while you were doing that, here's what we were doing. And it was just, I was just fascinated by listening to these people and also how well they got along. I mean, now here's people who had been enemies, adversaries for years, uh, you know, the law trying to put these people behind bars, and yet they were, the, the friendship or the camaraderie that existed really surprised me. So it, it was a, a very interesting times. So, so do you think that's because maybe, or are they portrayed pretty accurately in a lot of these movies and, and TV shows that we see, or is it kind of a little bit uh, different? A little Hollywood uh, in there, you know. And in fact, Frank was telling me, as I said, he was a technical consultant on the casino movie, and I asked him about some of the scenes in Casino and if they were over dramatic or how accurate they were. And he said some of the things um, he told, uh, he had a chair set up right next to the director, Marty Scorsese. And he said when he saw something that wasn't quite right, uh, he would tell Marty, and sometimes Marty would say, uh, yeah, but this is show business, you know, and we want to be pretty accurate about what happened. However, it's entertainment, and, and we have to have certain things in there for that would please the audience. And, in fact, Frank's... Uh, one of the issues Frank had was the person they asked to be had hired to be the hitman when uh, when they started having a bunch of potential witnesses bumped off. And Frank says, "No, no, no." He said, "We would never have done a hit that way." And so Scorsese said, "Well, you know how it's done. Do you want to do it?" So Frank ended up doing all the hit scenes himself. Uh, in the movie, so so he got the, the gig because he did not agree with how the the actor was portraying and, uh, and doing those scenes. So there's a lot of accuracy in, in Casino, especially a lot of accuracy. But then again, there's some Hollywood and some uh, some things in there that are meant for uh, to fire up the audience, not necessarily for accuracy. Yeah. Oh, do you have a favorite movie yourself? I, I like the original Godfather. God, well, actually, Godfather 1 and 2. Uh, when yeah. it comes to crime movies, they were probably my favorites. And then right up there with them are Goodfellas and Casino. Um, they're probably they're my top four favorite crime movies. What do you, what do you feel about The Sopranos? Uh, I never watched that much. I, I just never got into The Sopranos. I've talked to people who watched them, and uh, they said that in some cases they said there was a little bit too much Hollywood in it, uh, in the series uh, for them. But but overall, everybody I talked to thought it was a, a great show. I just never got involved personally as far as uh, uh, watching it or became a fan of it. Okay, so now in your new book, survivors uh what what's kind of the basis of this book um tell them tell the audience a little bit about what this is all about okay back in 2010 i was working as a private investigator part-time for a, a private detective agency in syracuse new york and i was assigned 
to look into the case of a soldier who had been stationed at Fort Drum in Watertown, New York, in the 10th Mountain Division. And he disappeared from um, a bar in Watertown on uh, March 16th of 2007, and he was listed as an AWOL and a missing person. And then six months to the day later, in September of 2007, his decomposed remains were found in a field about three miles outside of Watertown. The case was not his manner and cause of death because of the condition of the body. There was They couldn't do toxicology or anything. They, they were unable to determine a cause or manner. And the mother of the soldier was looking for help, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, trying to figure out what happened to her son. She was not satisfied with what the police and military CID had uh, had done. So I got involved in that case, and I've been still involved with it today. It's still un undetermined cause and manner of death. And I realize that there are a lot of cases out there in which are never solved. I mean, a lot of people think that when the police are called to the, to the scene of a murder or a suspicious death, that would, I guess they call it the um, CSI effect. They think within an hour there's going to be a resolution, somebody arrested or what have you. And uh, it's really stunning to me the number of unsolved cold cases that are out there. And these are murders and suspicious deaths. And we have also a lot of suicides that may not have been suicides that don't show up in the stats. So there are a lot of... Um, issues out there and you have a lot of people survivors of these victims looking for answers they want to find out what happened to their loved one why their loved one was killed or is dead and if it was foul play who did it so uh, I in addition to what I'm this uh, Fort Drum case this, uh, the dead soldiers case I started working with other people who's uh who were in a similar situation to the mother of the soldier. They, they wanted answers, and they wanted justice for their deceased loved one. And I formed a group called the Transparency Project because what I found was that in certain cases, and I'm, I'm pro-law enforcement, I don't want to give you the wrong idea, but in certain cases, because you're dealing cops or human beings, the same as doctors, lawyers, and accountants, and whatever, and not everybody's perfect and you have cases that are sometimes maybe not investigated as thoroughly as they could have been maybe not investigated at all or maybe botched investigations and what I found was that when the survivors want to get information on the police investigation to find out what happened what the police did or didn't do the uh, the police are exempt from having to honor FOIA requests based on what they call the open case exemption. So if a case is still open, they can say, well, we're, we're not going to release any information or any records because this case is still open. We're not going to jeopardize it. And, you know, that, that that's that's great if the, if the information could endanger an active police investigation and result in someone getting away or the case not being solved. 
but a lot of these cases, in fact, I got one that goes back over 50 years. And it gets to the point when these cases have not, they've been collecting dust for years or decades. And yet the police stop, we can't talk to you, we can't do this and that because it's an open case, we can't say anything. And I, the more I check into it, I realize that there's no appeals process. So if a survivor issues or submits a freedom of information request for the records, and they're told, no, you can't see these, we can't release them because of the open case exemption, it also serves when when there's not really any justification worried about jeopardizing an investigation. The the people, the actual officers, or the department that might be embarrassed if certain information gets out, they uh, use this open case exemption to to keep the records private. And there was no appeal process for that. If, if the, the survivor's request was denied, that was the end of the ballgame. So the Transparency Project, we're trying to get legislation enacted that would give the survivors a little uh, leg up and try to even the playing field. So, Dennis, a question. I noticed that you uh, actually were a private investigator for the Pinkertons. I was. And... Uh, would this be like a case of uh, cold cases that you as uh, you per you as the private investigator are are, are working on or is this would be uh, uh, because of that uh, open case situation even private investigators are 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 can't do anything about it uh, well the open case exemption that uh, anybody who files a FOIA request can be denied based on the open case exemption. So okay. uh, what we have done as part of the transparency project, we have started a cold case review panel with retired uh, law enforcement investigators, a retired coroner, and so forth. And we're doing pro bono case reviews. Now, these are not field investigations. We don't hop in a car and go out and interview people or that type of thing. It's up to the requesting party, the survivor, to obtain all this information, all the information they can about the case. And they submit it, and then the the panel looks it over. You know, it's all done on computer and telephone. And uh, then issues a report uh, making suggestions about possible areas of investigation that were not done or that should be done. And we might say, look, everything in here looks like it was done the best that, that could have been done under, you know, at the time. And there's really no uh, no additional investigation that we can see. So um, we, we try to give a fair and honest evaluation of the evidence. We do it all pro bono. There's no charge to anybody for it. And, um, and through that, we're meeting yet more and more people who are in this situation trying to find answers for these cold cases. And like I say, some go up to, you know, 50-plus years. Uh, some are within the last two or three years. But uh, And what happens a lot is a, some of these survivors don't realize that there may have been a problem with the investigation until, like, for example, the statute of limitations to file a wrongful death suit, a civil action to bring these 
people of interest into a courtroom setting and take depositions and inquire, the statute of limitations has already run. So it's too late. By the time they realize, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Um, I'm not satisfied the way the investigation was conducted. The option of a wrongful death suit, for example, is off the table. Most states, it's a two-year statute. So that's, uh, you know, another door is closed to them as far as trying to get answers. So, so then what you have with the survivors, you either have a situation where you uh, the case can continue, maybe possibly be solved, but it's either not for, let's say, justice, but more for closure or for both for a survivor? For both. For both. What, uh, I made a mistake when I first started this, getting involved with these cold cases of, uh, of, of using the term closure. And I was uh, informed one time by one mother uh, in no uncertain terms that there will never be closure. To her, closure implies that as soon as an arrest is made or whatever, everything goes away and it's like it never happened. Uh, she explained to me detail that uh, the uh, her son's anniversary. There's always a plate set for him, uh, Christmas time. So these things are never going to go away. But she said, "What we are after is resolution. We want the questions answered. Resolution for us and justice for our lost loved one." I see. So, how do you choose which case to follow up? Like, um, there's a lot of um, murder and there's a lot of suicide and suspicious deaths, but what is it about a case in particular that would make you stop and go, we got to look at this one further? It, well, it's got to have merit. Uh, one, of, one of the most difficult situations for me is a parent who believes their suicide of their child was not a suicide. And... In a lot of cases, what they have is a gut feeling. They just don't think their son or daughter would ever have taken his or her own life. And we can't really do much with that. We, we need something more than that. We need some kind of evidence, um, some reason to believe that there may have been foul play involved or someone may have promoted the suicide uh, you know, encouraging the person to take their own life. And that's up to the the requesting party, the, the survivor, to have that information. And it's very difficult to tell someone who believes wholeheartedly and very sincerely that their son or daughter did not take their own life, and you have to turn them down, saying we, there's just nothing here for us to look at. We're, we're not saying you know, that you're not right but there just isn't anything we can go on. There's nothing to uh, nothing to support the idea that this was not a suicide. Um, but if they have information, if they have, for example, statements from witnesses that, uh, that they've obtained, if they have any kind of like cell phone records or uh, now a lot of the social media stuff, if there was uh, Facebook pages and so on, that they can come up with uh, postings or evidence uh, to support their contention that uh, the case was not a suicide, then it's uh, it's something we can take a look at and have something, uh, you know, of, uh, to help support the theory that there may have been foul play involved. 
So how, how are the policing and the police departments, when you, when you talk about some of these old cases that are, you know, can be up to 50 years ago and stuff, and it's still open case, um, do, do the police want to help? or Like, why wouldn't they change that? Because that's a long time. Uh, it is, and uh, well, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers here, or, or, or two parts of the answer. One thing is some police agencies resent outside help mm-hmm. or inquiry. They don't like having, especially a civilian, uh, you know, looking at their work or looking at the work that was done within their department, maybe not by them personally, but by someone else and they they have some resentment for that so it's uh it, it can cause but not not everyone but there's a share of that uh not wanting to to have outsiders involved in a case the um the other thing is i want to point out as i've mentioned we're trying to get legislation our goal is to try to get legislation passed that will will help balance the playing field and, and make uh that's what we call transparency. We're interested in police transparency. And in 2016, the state of Illinois addressed this issue. A gentleman named Larry Young, whose daughter died uh, suspiciously, and he's been fighting for the, I guess it's seven or eight years now, of trying to get answers for his daughter. And what he did, he approached to the local politicians in Illinois and explained that trying to get information from the various police agencies who had a role in it looking at his daughter's death was a nightmare. And all they would do is say, oh, we can't tell you this, we can't talk to you, no, uh, open case. And he went to convince uh, legis- a couple of legislators, state legislators, that that was wrong. And he also brought up the issue of the uh, statute of limitations for wrongful death suits. And they put together, the politicians did, two bills which were passed and enacted into law in 2016. And they, I won't go into the numbers of the, the bills and all that, but they, they refer to the law as Mali's Law. And it does a couple of great things. Uh, one is, if if a FOIA request is denied under the open case exemption, they have installed an appeal process. So the requesting party can appeal to the state attorney general and have their the denial reviewed by the attorney general's office. And the beautiful thing about this is that having an open case in Illinois is no longer sufficient. The police agency denying the FOIA request has to prove that the case is open and also that it's active. It can't be on the shelf somewhere collecting dust. There's got got to be an ongoing active investigation. If the police agency can't meet that burden of proof, the AG can rule in favor of the requesting party, order the records released, and also impose a fine on the police agency involved. So that 
that's really a step. It's not the end of the road. There's more needs to be done, but that's a great step in the right direction <clears> to get something like that so that the open case is, at least in Illinois, not sufficient on its own for a denial of the survivor's request for records. And another thing that the uh, Molly's Law does, in certain cases, certain types of deaths, it extended the statute of limitations to file a wrongful death action to five years. So it gives, again, the survivor a little more time to, to realize something is wrong and and perhaps take action on their own through a civil suit to get people into a, a courtroom setting or depose them and, and question them about the incident. That so is, those are two well, great things. I was just saying that uh, it seems like uh, yeah, with the current situations, you, in the transparency project might be sympathetic uh, even nationally. And, with, and uh, I, I got to tell you that that certainly crossed my mind. And what I did now, I'm going back a few weeks when the Senate uh, Senator uh, Scott from uh, South Carolina was leading uh, for the Republicans anyway, the Republican side, the uh, the effort for police reform, and I thought. I said, hey, here's a chance, perhaps. So I wrote letters, uh, emails to several senators and said, while you're contemplating the police reforms, please don't forget the survivors. And I, in the letter, I, I put, uh, you know, the information that we've been talking about here about how these survivors tend to be victimized twice, first by the loss of the loved one and then second by the system. And uh, I thought that might go somewhere. And then uh, about three days after I sent the uh, sent the information, the Senate passed on any further debate, and the, the whole thing got <laughs> got uh, got thrown out, got shut down. So that was certainly disappointing. However, yesterday I sent uh, a similar letter to Attorney General Barr, a federal Attorney General, and. Um, that went out yesterday, so hopefully I might get some type of interest or response because they are, on a federal level, uh, aside from the Senate and House, uh, the Department of Justice is looking at police reforms as well. So I've got my fingers crossed that maybe Mr. Barr will, uh, you know, will actually read this or a staff member read it and uh, and and give it a give it a good look. Well, and also maybe, uh, who knows what will happen with the uh, November uh, elections, but if the things do change, then you might even want uh, to try that again because I'm sure that they're, there's a different way they're sympathetic. I'm, yeah, I got, I've, I've got my uh, Plan B ready. Uh, actually, there you are. Well, it's a Plan C or D, I guess, but I've got uh, <laughs> some options I'm keeping track of. So... Let me just um, go back for a second. I don't think I explained this. What I did with the Survivor's Book, which is a project of the Transparency Project, I didn't write the book myself. I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give the survivors a chance to tell their stories in their own words. So the people who were interested 
in, in getting their stories out there. Uh, what they did, I did little minor editing just to make sure that their their story was understandable and that a reader could follow it and it made sense. But other than that, uh, the stories appear in their own words, and I also got uh, four civilian cold case investigators to put their input into the book as well. So the, the book has, uh, has both civilian cold case investigators uh, telling their stories, and then it's got the actual survivors who lost loved ones to murder, suspicious death, telling their stories and what happened to them. So it um, it, it it worked out well in that sense now, but i got to tell you, of all the pe- people who signed up or expressed an interest in putting their stories in the book, all the survivors, uh, almost 50% of them dropped out because what, what happened was when it came time to write the story, they couldn't do it. They they just couldn't confront hmm. it or face it or relive it. So they had good intentions, but it was not as easy as they thought it might be. They thought they could just kind of sail through it, and it, it turned out it was not that way. So there was almost a 50% dropout rate of people who had wanted to do it but found they couldn't, and it was primarily due to the inability to, to, to live through that same experience again. <laughs> so now I was going to ask you, so when, when, when someone picks up the book and reads it and, and, and they walk away from it, what is it you want them to take away with it? I want them, what I want them to take away is that there is a problem, okay? Not, not all cases are solved. In fact, far from it. We call it the cold case epidemic in this country, the number of cold cases, hundreds of thousands of cold cases. And again, these are not including the the suspicious suicides or the suicides that may have been, may not have been. So we want people, we, we want public awareness. We want the public to be aware that there is a problem. There are problems with the current system and how it's conducted. It's not fair to the survivors. And it, it can serve, uh, in this, with especially with this focus on police activities and conduct, it can serve as a case almost where the, the fox is guarding the chicken coop. Because other than Illinois that I'm aware of, the, uh, every place else, the police department has the final say in what goes and uh, what's released and what isn't. So we, we want public awareness, and uh, we would like you know, kind of a groundswell of support because if we can't get something done on a federal level, at least federal guidelines, if they, even if they can't impose um, on, on the individual states, you're, you're looking at a 50-state effort. You'd have to get legislation in each of the 50 states. The only place that's got it now is Molly's Law in Illinois. So there have been an awful lot of work to do, and we need the public support. If uh, if we're going to have much of a chance to really get a meaningful result. Wow. So now, do you have a website that people can come find you and find out about your books? Yes, it's Dennis N. Griffin dot 
B-I-Z, biz, dennisngriffin.biz. And we also have a Transparency Project website, and that's the name of it, transparencyproject.com. Actually, it's Transparency Projects, it's plural, transparencyprojects.com. And we keep... Uh, we have information on there, information on how to get the case submitted to the cold case review panel. And we have, uh, I do a, a podcast, or two of them actually, one called Crime Wire and the other one called the Transparency Project Radio Show. And we interview the survivors, and we've got links to those podcasts up if people want to want to check them out. We've got a resources page where the survivors can get assistance, victim advocacy groups, uh, all stuff that's done pro bono, so there's no money involved here. Um, and, and that, uh, for anybody interested in, in those things, and, and we're getting more and more people inquiring about the cold case reviews and so forth because of the website, and we also have a Facebook page of the Transparency Private. That's a closed group. You have to apply for membership. Okay. So people can go to that website if they're looking for help and, and uh, or have questions about the whole whole project? Absolutely. Wow. Fantastic. So what's next for you? Well, I'm back to uh, my manuscript I just finished uh, well, a couple of weeks ago. Is back to Las Vegas and the mob, and I had written, I think, four or five books about that era in Las Vegas, and I, I really thought I knew everything there was to know about it. I knew the players, I knew what what went down, I knew how they got caught. I thought, and then uh, Frank Collada is uh, does tours, private tours in Vegas where he takes people around to the places that were in the movie and, you know, the actual locations and and talks about that. And he, he called me one day and he says, uh, guess who was on my tour last night? And I said, who? And he said, David Bowman. I said, well, you got me. I said, who's David Bowman? He said, well, he said, he's the guy that actually worked as a secret informant for the government and infiltrated uh, into the hole in what was known as the hole in the wall gang, which was the gang that uh, Tony Spilatro set up in Vegas. So he said, uh, he wants to write a book, would you help him out? So I got a hold of uh, David Bowman, and we talked and we did the book, we just completed the manuscript, it's called The Informant. And it's, uh, for almost 40 years, no one, including me, knew that there was such a person who had provided the information to the law that uh, helped to bring down Collada and the Hole in the Wall gang and Spilatro. So uh, oh. we did that book, and it uh, will be out later this year. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds uh, dangerous. <laughs> Bowman told me, he said, you know, he says, when I was doing this, he said, he said, back in those days, 70s and early 80s, he said Vegas was known as kind of a cowboy, wild town. And law enforcement, they said uh, 
the only difference between that, a lot of them and the mobsters was that the lawmen had a badge. And uh, he said one of his concerns was that he would end up going for a ride out in the desert, a one-way ride, and not necessarily with a mobster. He said he was just as concerned that a, a cop might take him out in the desert as well as the, as well as a mob guy. So he, uh, he had quite an experience, boy, with, uh, with what he was doing. Quite Sounds a, like it. Quite a lifestyle, I am sure. Um, yes. How, so how how is your writing and everything going with all this COVID and protests and all the unrest? Does it affect you in your writing? Not very much, because with the Internet and, uh, and telephone and so forth, I'm able to keep up with most of what I want to do. Um, and the uh, the thing is, you know, I've gotten a couple of uh, programs. I'm, I'm low-tech, by the way, as far as computers go. I can... I can function, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not great at it. But I've gotten on some of these uh, teleconferencing programs, WebEx and Zoom and so forth. And uh, if, you know, if, uh, between all these uh, different um, avenues, I'm able to get the work done and the research done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it can still be done. You know, all that. So, um, so what happened to Jimmy Hoffa? Well, funny you should ask, but I, uh, <laughs> I was contacted about three years ago, and unfortunately I understand the gentleman I was talking with passed away since, but he was a, a driver for Hoffa temporarily, and he swears up and down that Hoffa is in uh, the foundation of a parking garage for a big mall in Detroit, and that... Uh, he was there when Hoffa's body was dumped. Now, I didn't independently verify this. I, I do know that he that he was actually a driver for Hoffa, and uh, it was quite a story. But he said that he went to the feds, and they said there was nothing they could do. They'd have to tear the whole mall down or something to be able to get down into this uh, underneath the parking garage, and because uh, everything's. The whole building supported on beams and columns that come up from the from the uh, from the basement. So if that's true or not, I don't know. But it was uh, it was interesting to talk to him. I got to say that. Yeah, it's one of those mysteries we'll probably never know. But um, yes, yeah, it's quite the lifestyle. Well, it's been certainly interesting, and uh, we've really enjoyed uh, having you on the show. Um, we're going to have your website up. We'll have your book up. And the book we're talking about uh, is Survivors, and it's The Forgotten Victims of Murder and Suspicious Deaths. And our guest has been the author, Dennis Griffin. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.